This is the Ardella Training Podcast, episode number 82. Welcome to the all-new Ardella Training Podcast, the leader in innovative strength and performance training, where we help you train smarter to get maximum results. Committed to forging athletic bodies around the world. Now, let's get started with your host, strength and conditioning specialist, sports nutritionist, and former physical therapist, Scott Ardella. All right, guys, welcome to this week's episode, and thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. I've got a great session for you today. You're going to hear from Dr. Krista Scott Dixon, and she is absolutely awesome. If you don't know who she is, you're going to learn about her in this interview, and you're going to hear some amazing content as this session is really packed with uh, training and nutrition information and practical advice that you can use and apply right now. This is an awesome interview. Seriously, I, I highly encourage you to listen all the way through this one. And I also want you to share this episode because it's really valuable information that I think we can all learn from and use. So a couple of quick announcements here before we get started. If you enjoy the show, as always, please take a minute and drop in your review in iTunes or Stitcher. Also wanted to let you know that uh, new things are coming from ArdellaTraining.com. I'm currently uh, rolling some new things out to my subscribers at Ardella Training. If you want to hear and learn about what is uh, available and what's coming, make sure that you subscribe at ArdellaTraining.com to get the inside track. Also, uh, this week's Ask Scott segment, this is going to be a quick one uh, because I'm going to address this in a future article. But I've been getting a lot of questions around the kettlebell bent press and how to program the bent press. So I'm going to basically write this up as an article and uh, give some more uh, programming guidance. How do you program in the bent press? And uh, so I'll talk about that in an article. But that was one thing. I've gotten a lot of questions about that. And uh, I think it'll be best served in an article so you can look at how to effectively program the uh, the wonderful kettlebell bent press, and uh, I, I know it's there's a lot of uh, questions around that exercise, and there is a lot of variability with the exercise, but it is a really really valuable uh, kettlebell exercise, and I'll address that in a article. So look for that soon on the ArdellaTraining.com website. All right, I want to get started in this interview because we covered so much uh, ground here. So here's what you're going to hear about in this interview. You're going to hear about how her training has evolved through the years, and she's been at it for quite a long time. You're going to hear the biggest myths about women and strength training, her big advice on training, the state of fitness, where are the nutritional gaps, her key tips for fat loss, big lies in nutrition, and so much more. She has a lot of great insight to share that all of us can benefit from. So again, I highly encourage you to listen all the way through this one. Let me tell you about Dr. Krista Scott Dixon, because she believes that good nutrition and movement can transform our health, our communities, and our lives. She has a PhD in women's studies, and she's a formerly unathletic person who took up grappling and judo, and her website stumptuous.com has inspired thousands to embrace strength training. Her current role is at Precision Nutrition, where she is the program developer and coaching coordinator. And she draws on her considerable skills to guide clients 
for the most powerful transformations possible. She, again, is a wealth of information. She's brilliant. She's fantastic. She's funny. And uh, she shares some great, great content in this interview. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Uh, Sit back, enjoy it. And of course, take action with the information, apply the information that she shares with us here. So let's check out the interview with Dr. Krista Scott Dixon. All right, everybody, this week's featured interview is with the awesome Krista Scott Dixon. And I can guarantee this is an interview you will definitely want to hear. So Krista, thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to this one. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Totally my pleasure. So before we get into the uh, questions, we're going to talk about training, nutrition, and some other good stuff here. But I wonder if for the listeners that aren't familiar with you, if you can share your story and background before we get started. Yeah, I'm actually one of the relative oldsters, I would say, in, uh, you know, having information online about fitness and nutrition. So that's kind of fun. But basically, I started the website uh, stumptuous.com back in the mid-90s. And that was because that was at a time when I was out of shape and looking to get back into shape. And having no discernible athletic talent, I thought, I would, I'll just lift weights because I can move heavy things around. And what I discovered, this was the time uh, of Shape magazine, and there was really no women's weight training information as we know it today, except what was available in university libraries. So I was trying to find information on getting started with weights and coming up kind of short. And so as I did my research, because I was an academic at the time, I thought, you know, I bet other women would find this helpful. So I created a little website. I mean, this was back in 94, 95. And so it was like really basic wow. HTML and really yeah. ugly to begin with. And um, <laughs> I, so I put a few pages up and, and then I would get questions, right? People would find my website and, and send me a question. And I would think, wow, that's a really, that's a really good question. I'll, I'll make another page. And so the site just kind of grew organically. And in, in my real job as an academic, what I was finding was that I was spending time surfing the internet, learning more about health and fitness, learning about nutrition and so forth. So when I quit academia, I kind of transferred this hobby, if you will, into uh, a real job, which was kind of kind of cool. And I joke that like, I, I spent the first 10 years or so just farting around on the internet all day, and yeah. now that's my job, which is pretty great. Nice. So what is your current role? What, uh, who do you work with right now, and what exactly do you do? Well, I work with Precision Nutrition, and right now I design and develop all the curriculum for their coaching programs. So whether that's what used to be called the Lean Eating Program, now we call it PN Coaching because people can now come in with all kinds of uh, different goals, or uh, the Level 2 Coaching Program. So I oversee and I develop and I design all of that coaching curriculum. And I do other things too, like I, I, I edit stuff on the website, I might edit some of the print materials. For example, I, I edited the level one textbook and the readers of the world thank me, I think. But um, so I do a whole bunch of different things, but that's generally my focus is really uh, coaching, teaching, educating. Excellent. So we're going to talk about the uh, Precision Nutrition stuff at the end for sure and definitely what's coming uh, from Precision Nutrition. Really exciting stuff. And the textbook, by the way, is fantastic. I didn't realize that you uh, edited the textbook, but it's fantastic. Oh, glad you're enjoying it. It's got nice pictures, too. I can't take credit for that. <laughs> I think it's actually probably one of the most accessible college-level textbooks around. I don't know of any, anyone better. Yeah, definitely. 
So let's talk about your training background. Let's um, get into uh, what you learned or discovered early on. You, you talked about how you were spent a lot of time on the internet and kind of trying to find out about the right ways to train. And I remember reading that. You, so you do, you weren't necessarily an athlete um, when you were younger. No, I was the anti-athlete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was the kid hiding in the gym change room to avoid gym class or faking yeah. being sick or forgetting my gym clothes or getting picked last for the team. Yeah, I was the opposite of athlete. So, so what changed for you and what, what was maybe the key discovery or, or turning point in your training? Um, that's such an interesting question. I, I would actually have to trace it to back in the 80s in high school. I actually, I was trying to avoid taking my obligatory gym credit. And as I got into my senior years of high school, I realized, oh, I have to make this happen somehow. And there was a weight training course available. And I thought, okay, that is the only thing I can do. I can't do anything with projectiles or swimming or anything like that. So, so I took that course and it was with one of these classic old gym teachers, like one of those guys that's built like a fire hydrant and has the kind of military <laughs> haircut. And he, like he really yeah. carried around that whistle with the polo shirt and stuff. And like he wore the running shorts and the knee socks. Oh man. And I mean, he was old school, right? <laughs> yeah. But he turned me on to this idea that women could lift weights or at the time girls could lift weights. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. So I took that knowledge forward with me and worked out a little bit uh, during my undergrad, but where it really hit the ground for me was in grad school, because anyone who's done grad school will know the situation. You are tired, you're burnt out, you're eating junk food, you're sitting on your butt. You know, it's just not exactly what you'd call a health-promoting situation. So during that time, with a steady diet of chicken wings and beer and pizza, I, I gained 50 pounds and uh, on a five-foot-tall body. Like, wow. that starts to make you kind of circular, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, I was starting to have, you know any of the problems you would normally have with sitting on your butt all day and getting fat. Like I was hurting, my knees were hurting, my hips were hurting. And so I just thought, okay, this has to change. Like there was a moment when I remember just lying on the floor crying and I was like, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot live in this container right. anymore. And so I, and I didn't even have money for a gym membership. That's what a broke grad student I was. And so wow. the next morning I went out and I laced up my shoes and I walked around the local high school track for an hour. So, but eventually I was able to get enough shekels together for a gym membership. And, and I walked into the weight room and I was like, yes, like I just, I loved the smell of it, like the, <laughs> the leather. And again, this would have been in the mid nineties and pretty old school, like old cinder block kinds of places. Right. So right. the way it smelled, the kind of people that were in it, I just, there was something about it that I just loved. So that was, that was what I would say would have been the major inspiration. There was just that kind of yeah. confrontation with my own mortality, really. So when you started training in the gym, uh, what was that like and how does it compare to today? How, so how has your training evolved through the years? Um, it's kind of funny. It sort of has and it sort of hasn't. But I remember the first time I did a squat, it was just tremendous. Like I was so scared. Yeah. <laughs> so I went at a time like six in the morning when I didn't think anyone else was going to be there. So if I fell on my butt, like no one was going to see me. <laughs> so I was right, really right. at that point quite intimidated and scared, not by being a woman, but just by being so unathletic and feeling really dorky. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my initial experiences were definitely um, 
that combination of like scaredness, but also thinking, oh, this is so awesome. Yeah. And, and oh, so I cool. haven't ever lost that in a certain kind of way. But what I will say has changed is I started as someone who thought like a bodybuilder because that was what I could get my hands on in terms of material. Right. Uh, so, you know, we, back then we were reading um, muscle and fitness. Sure. Like I think flex was around at that time. Yeah. Eventually, uh, the Bill Phillips stuff started to come out. So uh, really, it was a very bodybuilding physique kind of orientation. And so what I would okay. do is I would have like a chest day, yeah. right? So I would go in and I would bench press and then I would incline press and then I would do pec flies and then I would do the machine pec flies and who knows what else I would do, right? So uh, <laughs> it was very much that kind of body part, kill it with volume um, approach uh, early on. And now, of course, I use a much more movement-oriented, simple, uh, functional approach that really thinks about, okay, what are the basics? What are the basic movement patterns? How can I use them to kind of just make my body better from a functional perspective? Right. Got it. So what are the basics that you focus on? If there's a handful of uh, key lifts, what are the ones that you focus on today? It's funny because I don't even really think of them as lifts anymore. I think of them as movement types. And so often what I'll do is I'll just go down to my basement gym right into the alley and think, okay, what movement types am I going to do today? So, for example, there's a squat movement type, which you can do in all kinds of ways. There is a hip hinge movement type. There might be a crawling type or a running type, a pressing type, a pulling type. So that's really how I think about yeah. things now, which I think is, is kind of fun because it opens up lots of variety. And for example, this morning I went downstairs and I had this scheduled workout and I, I just wasn't feeling it. Like my low back was a little cranky and I thought, okay, so that's not happening today, <laughs> right. but what else could happen? Right. Could yeah. I change the power clean to a kettlebell swing? Could I change the single jerk to a double jerk? Could I do something else? And so that's kind of cool. Cause you don't feel limited by, Oh, well it's squat day. And if I can't squat today, then there's just no point in even showing up. Right. And that's a really big thing too. Really important thing about training is recognizing when it's not a good day to do a certain exercise and just, um, being really in tune with your body and uh, and having other exercises that you can draw from. Well, yeah, and also I like to play the long game. And so the way I look at it is, let's say today was a B-plus workout or even a B. It was okay, right? Adequate. Right. Um, doesn't matter because I've been training for 20, 25 years. So, and I hope to train until I'm dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one adequate workout, hey, I showed up and got it done, and it's swimming in the ocean of all the thousands of workouts that I hope to do in my life. So I I like to take really the long view and think about the big picture. So that frees me from getting all bent out of shape about what's actually happening today. And it also helps me train in a much more sustainable way. And I kind of joke that my motto is tap out early and live to fight another day. And that's true in grappling and that's true in in training too. Some days it's great to be a hero, right? But those days are maybe one in 10, one in a hundred, one in 50, who knows? Yep. You're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Let's talk about some of the uh, myths with uh, strength training specifically and specific to women. What what do you think uh, maybe the myths or misunderstandings that women have in, in terms of how they perceive strength training? 
I think one of the biggest ones, and one that, one that just boggles my mind, but I've heard it from a number of people, is that you actually don't need to be strong, or, or why would you want to get stronger? I, I had a client years ago who had a degenerative neurological disease, and so I said to him, look, like we can't slow the progression of this, but we can make you go kicking and screaming all the way. And so he communicated this to his physiotherapist who said to him, well, I don't, why would you want to get stronger? And this question just seems so nonsensical <laughs> to yeah, me. Yeah. Of course, why? because like, it, it drops off as you age, right? So you really want to create a, a solid foundation of strength because when you're 85 years old, you're going to be really grateful that you created that for yourself. So I feel like one of the biggest overarching myths beyond the details is just that strength is not a priority, right? Oh, you, maybe you want to focus on so-called cardio or you want to focus on your endurance, your flexibility. And so I, I think the biggest gap is just getting that brute functional strength. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's sort of a big picture thing, but I definitely think, I think that it's there. Yeah. I, uh, I totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, that's a big reason why I do this podcast is to get the message out there around strength training specifically. Um, do you think that it's changing? I mean, do you think that, uh, you know, with some of the uh, training methods and styles that are out there today that people are realizing the value of strength and the overall big picture approach in what it can do as far as performance and certainly um, long-term health? Oh, I think it's definitely changing. And certainly in athletic training, it's changing. Uh, decades ago, a lot of athletic coaches would have said, no, we don't weight train our athletes because it makes them slow. It makes them inflexible. It makes them muscle bound, quote unquote. So I think that's definitely changing. I mean, every athletic team now has a strength and conditioning staff who understand that getting strong is the foundation of everything. But I think it's also changing a lot with the advent of CrossFit. And whatever yes. you think about CrossFit, they've been incredibly successful at getting people lifting weights. Um, and so I think there's now an emerging appreciation, especially among women, of like, hey, I look at the CrossFit women and they look pretty good, a lot of them to me, yes. depending on what your aesthetic is, right? But right a lot of them are looking pretty good and they're filling out those booty shorts really well. And I'd be kind of, be kind of nice for me to look like that. And I, I think that if I go and lift weights, maybe I could look like that, right? You can start to see the chain of logic starting to dawn on people. Um, so I do think that strength is enjoying a little bit of a resurgence now, which is, which is kind of cool. Definitely. Now, what do you say to a, a female client that says that they just want to tone they don't want to get stronger. They don't want to build muscle. They just want to tone up. I say, great. Let's go to the squat rack and we'll do some toning squats. <laughs> like seriously, I, I like, yeah, to, I like yeah. to work with what people give me. And I think a lot of coaches um, resist or they try to explain or they try to argue against the worldview that our clients are coming in with. But I think if you take a client-centered perspective, you speak their language, you translate for them. And so maybe six months from now, like I said, I always play the long game, maybe six months from now or a year from now, they might come around to your perspective. They might use different words, uh, explosive power or whatever, hip hinging. But today, if I have to use the word tone to get a woman in the squat rack, fine. Right. Let's do it. And, and I'll talk to them and say, okay, here's realistically what you can expect in terms of what will happen to your body. So a month from now, here's what you'll feel. A, a year from now, here's what you'll feel. And if you're concerned, 
oh, I don't want to look like, uh, let's say, you know, Ms. Olympia or something. Let's talk about what it takes to get there. Because I think that's part of the problem too. A lot of people don't understand what is the process by which I look like a professional female bodybuilder. They, they sort of think they just roll out of bed and lift a few weights and that's how it all ends up. Like they, they're right, not clear right. on the steps that are in between. Sure. So if you can communicate to them, this is actually what it takes to get there. You need decades of training. You need genetics. You need drugs. You need ridiculous control over your food and so forth. Yes. Then they kind of go, oh, okay, I see, I see. And, and more than that, I feel because as you train with them, you can say, okay, how's it feeling? What's happening for you? What was it like to wake up after the workout? They start to feel what's happening. And feeling is one of the most compelling arguments. So I never bother arguing. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's use whatever words you're using and run with that. What, what is your biggest advice to women specific to strength training? So um, is it to train heavier, to get stronger, to... Uh, try to add more quality muscle. What would you say to to women in general around that? Well, you know, it's interesting. And obviously women are going to have all kinds of different goals. But I, I kind of back it up a little bit. And I say build a powerful machine. So aim to run fast, hit hard, jump high, build a powerful heart and lung engine, and just make yourself a superhero. Be your best self, your most powerful, strongest, most confident, in-control self. And what that looks like for every woman is obviously going to be different. Uh, You know, a marathon runner might feel amazing when she blasts through the final stretch and and just feels really strong and solid. Someone else might understand this in a different way. So I kind of frame it in those general terms and to say, be powerful, be awesome, be your most awesome self and translate that however you like. I love it. Build a powerful machine. (laughs) I mean, that's really what it's all about. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the state of the fitness industry. So where do you see things today, maybe the good and the bad? Well, I think there's definitely lots of good and bad. Um, I think the internet, for example, has been tremendous in terms of disseminating information. I mean, I was <laughs> I was looking for through old magazines, and I had an old book from the 80s that was published by the Widers on women's strength training. Like, I had nothing. I, I think I found it at, like, the local library. So there's so much more information available, and especially for niche training, right? So whether you're a runner, a paddler, a surfer, whatever you are, you can find stuff that speaks to you and that's amazing and you can also connect with a community of other people just like you I mean when I started off I was alone I was literally the only woman in the weight room I actually would count I'd be like there's 50 men in here and me really wow (laughs) so so that's changed a lot obviously but you can you can find a community of like-minded people now the downside of course uh is that you can be overwhelmed by the information you can have trouble filtering it you can be led astray by people who are trying to make a lot of money and in terms of a community you can start to police yourself according to the norms of that community, right? So uh, if a whole bunch of people look a certain way or they're doing a certain thing, you can start to feel like you should be doing that too. So I, I, I would call that one out as really the game changer in the industry would be the internet for sure. And I think as well, there's also much more of a sense that you can get rich 
in the fitness and nutrition industry, that it's an industry of instant millionaires and people yeah. who are selling themselves and, and being celebrities and that sort of thing. But the reality is not at all like that. So I think that would definitely... So, so on the one hand, that's good because people get inspired. They want to go into this as a career. They want to help people. And the downside is that they're disappointed when it doesn't work out like they expect or it's a lot more work than they expect and right. they become workaholics or they discover that their life is kind of swirling down this, uh, this pipeline of just constant demand. So there's never really any good or bad. I definitely th think it's a mixed bag. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to something you, you said a little bit earlier about that uh, 50 to 1 ratio in the gym. So not to derail this topic, but, <laughs> but how did you feel being the only woman in a gym with 50 other guys? How did you push through that? Because I think that would be kind of intimidating. Um, it was sometimes, although I'm not tremendously easily <laughs> intimidated, but it, awesome. it's weird because it creates a kind of invisibility for you. Um, I, I stood out, but I didn't in a way because to most of these guys, I was irrelevant Nobody cared. Okay. Nobody cared what I did. Nobody thought me of any consequence or value. I wasn't in competition with them. I wasn't like another big guy that was threatening them with a, a big bench, right? So right, right. a lot of them saw me as just inconsequential. And when you're inconsequential, I mean, you have to imagine, I'm, again, five feet tall. I wear glasses. <laughs> like, I kind of I kind of come yeah. and go in a quiet sort of way. Yeah. And so when you're inconsequential, there's actually kind of an interesting power there because you can come and go and do what you please. And nobody's paying attention to you. So right. that was kind of cool, actually, liberating in a, in a weird sort of way. And I, also what I discovered is that often some of the scariest dudes in the gym are the yeah. nicest. Especially, again, if you're a small woman, if you show up and you start moving some heavy stuff around eventually, they're like, hey, not bad. High five. So for me, it was almost always a completely positive experience. And, and I'm also assertive enough that if I need to work in on something... Cool. I ask. And I'm friendly, too. Like, I smile. Hey, how's it going? Um, that goes a long way, uh, for sure, in a gym. Just being <laughs> basically yeah. polite and courteous human being. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm sorry to derail that, but I wanted to go back. I thought that was really interesting. You know, just one woman and, and 50 men in a gym, but uh, that's a really interesting experience. And uh really commend you for doing that. Krista, how, how would you define uh, what it is to be fit? That's such a great question, and I think it's definitely the subject of so much debate. But for me, I've always defined it as the power to do, the power to do things. And because there's a couple kinds of power, right? There's power yes. over, right? I have power over you. Um, but there's this kind of internal power, like your little battery that's inside you. And that's really the definition of power that I like. And so being fit just means you have the power to, to do, to execute, to act in the world um, in whatever way is appropriate to you. You. So I think that opens up the possibility for fitness to be all kinds of things. I do like to see it as a bit of an all-roundness. So ideally, you do want to have a set of capacities, right? Um, so for example, I'm, I'm not a runner, but I still run a little bit because I feel like running is a fundamental human skill and I want to have it in my toolbox should yes. I ever need it, right? To run for a bus or away from a bear <laughs> or something like that. Um, so I feel like fitness is almost like a toolbox of stuff and, and maybe you're better with some tools than others and that's fine, but you have them all 
in there. That's what it is for me. Okay. Is it possible to have peak health and peak fitness at the same time, or are you compromising one over the other? Yeah, probably not. I would I would say that it's probably not possible to have both at the same time. Yes. I think you can only have one peak. Right, right. <laughs> and exactly. you, can, you can choose it, right? And it yeah. shifts for you at different times. Like, uh, uh, now I'm in my 40s and I'm like, wellness is a lot more important to me than performance or crushing a workout or, or impressing anybody. Not that I ever impressed anybody, but you know you can try. <laughs> yeah. But but different different priorities come in and out of focus at different times in your life, and it's really more about accepting the trade-offs. So, for example, when I was in my um, athletic competition years, uh, I traded off a lot of health for for training, um, yes. and that was just how it worked. I, I I thought, okay, you know what? I'm however old I am right now. This is probably the only period of time in which I'll be competing seriously. So I'll worry about the longevity piece later on. Um, so it really is, I think, about surface, like just making your choices uh, conscious and, and surfacing them into your awareness to say, I choose this, not this, and kind of being okay with that, right? To not be disappointed or upset if you're missing whatever it was that you gave up. I think one of the challenges people face is that they try to have 10 peaks right. and then they get upset when they're not getting everything they want. Like, oh, I want to gain mass and I want to lose fat and I want to run a marathon and I want to do powerlifting. Yes. Okay, you got to pick one. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> you can't, you exactly. can't ride two horses with one butt, right? Yeah, you cannot do it all. It's just absolutely <laughs> impossible. But that's why I wanted you to ask you that question about peak health and peak fitness because it's it's unachievable. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. if you're trying to perform at a very high level, the health will be compromised to an extent. Now, so if you want, for listeners that want a peak level of health, then, you know, you, you can't have all the things that you just mentioned, you know, running a marathon and Olympic weightlifting and all these other things. Um, it just, they, they can't coexist. Mm-hmm. And I think too, we want to think about what does health mean, right? Yes. I mean, arguably when you're competing, you're probably not mentally or emotionally healthy. Um, right. You're maybe right. not psychologically healthy. Maybe you're driven to execute an obsession if you're a competitor at a certain time in your life. So I think we also want to broaden the definition of, just as we broaden the definition of fitness, we want to broaden the definition of health as well and really think about it in a very multidimensional way and as just another one of the trade-offs that you might make. Well, that's a really good point about the psychology. And we could go in a whole different direction right now with the psychology, which I'd love to ask you about, but maybe we'll save that for another time because I know you have a lot of insight on that. Uh, But let's talk about nutrition. So I wanted to ask you where you see some of the big nutritional gaps in the uh, fitness industry. Where where do people need more education or, or, or direction? You know, it's interesting because my instinctive response to that is, in certain ways that people do not need more information. Arguably, they need less information. But what I would say they really need that we've lost is a set of basic skills and capacities. Uh, So whether that's uh, food preparation skills or self-management skills or survival skills in terms of life survival skills, I feel like we've lost a lot of that. And I think of my grandmother, who truly is my fitness model. Um, she's 88 years old, lives by herself in a cabin in northern Ontario in a very rural, remote area. And there's pretty much no situation that she cannot handle. And from a nutritional perspective, I could bring her any food and she could make something out of it. And, and literally... <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> she she um, lived with no power or running water until um, I think the 70, 60s or 70s. But she literally kept her food in a hole in the ground as the refrigerator. <laughs> now that's a basic survival skill. So I think yeah. we've lost a lot of those crafts and skills and capacities that previous generations had, which would then lead us to make effective nutrition-related decisions. I also feel like we've lost to some degree the ability to sense in via our inner feeling and our inner compass rather than external, external rules because we've outsourced a lot of stuff to experts, right? So we watch Dr. Oz or we read uh, medical blogs or whatever. Right. And on the one hand, that's good. We know we do learn. At the same time, we've outsourced responsibility and, and sensing in to experts. And so people will say, well, should I eat this? And I'm like, well, eat it. See what happens. Right? <laughs> right, right. Do, you, you know, do yeah. I have a food allergy? I don't know. Eat that shrimp. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Totally. How do you feel yeah. when you eat that way? Do you feel awesome? Do you feel terrible? Do you feel itchy or sneezy or whatever? So people have really lost this inner sense. Even basic stuff like, are you hungry? Are you full? Uh, people don't know anymore, which if you think about our evolutionary history, it's kind of kooky, right? Not to know when you're hungry, like, doesn't make any sense. But I think we have definitely lost that trust in ourselves and the ability to sense our inner cues. So it's not necessarily uh, nutrition per se. It's really more of a way of thinking about nutrition. But I would definitely point to that as a major, major gap. So less info, more skills, um, using common sense, it sounds like. When I ask you this question, this is something I asked a recent guest, but so there's a lot of conflicting nutritional information that's out there. So what do you do? What advice do you have for people that maybe read a book about certain nutritional principles and yet they see something on Dr. Oz that says something completely the opposite? And it really is frustrating and confusing. I mean, e even for me, myself, I don't watch, watch Dr. Oz, but, you know, it is... There's just this overwhelming um, different mixed messages around nutrition sometimes. So how do you – what is your advice to sort through that and make sense of it all? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that because this is something that we're working on with our, our coaches in training in the Level 2 Precision Nutrition Certification right now, which is how do you know what you know, right? Where are you hanging your hat in terms of your knowledge base and why? Because I think this really gets back to empowering people to make better decisions. So a client comes to me and they're like, I'm confused. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's not sort it out for you immediately. Let's talk about that experience of confusion. Like what's actually happening there? What's happening is that you're getting competing information from a whole variety of sources. So who do you trust? You tell me. Like, think, you know, think, think this through. Um, how do you evaluate the information coming in? Is the source credible? Why do you think that? Have you tested it? How did that work for you? What is the insight and the wisdom that you have from your own experience? So, for example, this nutritional expert is saying, oh, you need to control your stuff and you need to time your carbohydrates so you only eat them, I don't know, between 5 and 8 p.m., whatever. And you can sit down with a client and say, okay, that's, that's interesting. We can either try that as an experiment or based on your own experience, does that seem like something that could work for you? And if you kind of have that conversation around the knowledge of it, the, the knowledge of, you know, the production of the knowledge and the processing of the knowledge, they start to say, yeah, you know what? 
I can kind of see how that's not really very workable. Okay, cool. Um, what has been workable, right? What are the bright spots for you nutritionally? When do you feel good? What makes you feel in control? What makes you feel calm and sane and healthy and energetic, right? And so I think, again, it comes back to helping people or giving people a framework to process the information trust their own experience, trust their own insight and wisdom, and kind of slow down and build that awareness so that they're able to engage in that process. Now, there are times when you just have to tell people, like, that idea is stupid or not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you have to yeah. kind of stop the little kid from grabbing the stove. Yeah. But a lot of the time, and I think you know, parents listening will know this, children are experiential learners, right? They have to throw the ball through the window to know physics. <laughs> right. And it's the same thing with clients. Uh, testing and experimentation and self-awareness is often the best way to help people make decisions. So yeah. um, I remember having a client once who was was like, ah, oh, should I go raw vegan? I really want to go raw vegan. I'm like, okay, let's try. Let's see what happens there. And she came back to me after a week and was like, I feel crazy and <laughs> food obsessed and I yeah. can't stop going to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, there's our answer. But yeah. like one more point I would make about that is that I would also kind of help people understand that a lot of this is about trying to control the uncontrollable, right? Because people sort of feel like if I find the right program, that will solve everything. And to kind of check that perspective a little bit with them and to say, you know what? You can't control everything. Randomness is going to happen. Um, let's look at what we can do in, in a real life to just improve your chances, to improve your potential. But you cannot control everything. So there's no magic diet. There's no magic plan. Nothing's going to save you. There's no white knight. Random stuff happens. Right. So I think if you help them relinquish that control or that anxiety, that is also very, very useful. And then what you actually tell them matters less than the feeling about it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, for me, um, and thinking about this, asking you the question, it really comes down to three simple things. And so I am a, a science guy. I like to read uh, the research on nutritional principles and things like that. So that's the first thing is, is there science behind any method? Number two is common sense. Does it make common sense? Mm -hmm. And then number three, like you said, it's just the experience, the practical application. Sometimes you just got to get in and try stuff and see if it works. So, I mean, that's really the kind of the ultimate formula for me is those th three things. Is there, you know, real science behind it? Does it make common sense and does it work? Bottom mm -hmm. line. So. And that gets back to the whole, how do you know what you know? Right. Right. Helping yep. clients uh, learn to test whatever it is they get from another source. Right. Absolutely. What do you think are the big lies <laughs> in uh, in nutrition, are, are there any like really outrageous things that that you think are just terrible related to nutrition? The the first one that jumps to my mind immediately is again this idea that there is a magic plan, that there is a system or a thing that will solve all your problems. Like I remember my mother got really into eating paleo, and good for her. Yes. Uh, it, it helped her a, a lot in in a lot of ways. But she called me up and she was like, "Well, I have some inflammation in my thumb." And I thought eating paleo was supposed to help with this. And I said, Mom, you're 68 years old. <laughs> paleo does not make you immortal. <laughs> right, right. It's not going to stop you from getting Gardner's thumb or whatever. <laughs> so I, I think one of the big ones is that there is the magic solution out there, and all you have to do is find it. I mean, I remember spending years looking for the magic combination of foods or eating habits or whatever that would somehow make me never hungry. 
Well, guess what? Hunger happens. You're going to be hungry. It's a fact of life. So I, I feel like people often go down the rabbit hole trying to chase this thing that's going to solve everything. And of course, it's not just their nutritional problems, right? It's the, it's the nutrition plan that's going to make them sexy and beautiful and sure. make someone love them and make them feel in control of all their choices and distract them from their crappy job or whatever. Right. So uh, I think there's all those pieces to that. So th there is no magic as one. I, I do feel like the low-carb thing has created some problems. And again, it's the kind of the good with the bad, right? I, I love the idea of people thinking critically about the processed food that they're bringing into their body, right? So maybe cut down the Coke. Great. Um, think about choosing an orange instead of orange juice. Awesome. Yeah. Right? I think we can all get behind that. And at the same time, what I have seen in our clients is some significantly disrupted hormonal environments as a result of dropping their carbs too low for too long, too aggressively, especially if they're training. And I think this is definitely true of an athletic population. You cannot train I don't know, something like CrossFit multiple times a week at a high level of intensity and go low carb unless you're, you know, one of the outliers that really thrives on it, right? A few people do. So they, they try it and they're like, that was awesome. I feel great. And they do feel great. It's real for them. But 95% of people don't feel that way, especially women. And I have dealt with tons of women who are now in early menopause because of overly zealous low carbing and attempting to train with it and getting frustrated because they think, well, it should work. Yeah, it should work in theory, I suppose. Right? Yeah, <laughs> Un yeah. Unless we learn more about why it doesn't work, which would, would then disprove the theory. But, but it's one of those, like, as you said before, right? Is there science? Is there common sense? Is there experience? Well, ultra low carb fails the common sense and experience test for most people. And it's starting to fail the science test too. So again, I kind of come back to this very pragmatic approach. Like, hey, you feel immediately better with a handful of slow digesting carbs at every meal? Great. Let's go there. Um, you know, with clients, I, I feel like the diversity among people is so significant. It's very hard to make one size fits all prescriptions. And you, and I think we tend to want to make people feel kind of bad if they're not doing what they should, right? Right? Like you failed low carb <laughs> in a way, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but I think we really want to be mindful of the diversity of people and respect their physical experience. And so if something's working for them, I don't care if someone comes to me and says, I feel fantastic if I eat nothing but chicken McNuggets. I'll be like, you know what? Let's just roll with that until it becomes a problem. If, if your blood work's looking good and you're winning yeah. all your competitions and you look amazing, let's just presume that you're one of those genetic freaks for yeah. whom chicken McNuggets is the magic food. <laughs> Let me um, ask you about low carbs. So what do you consider the danger zone for low carbs? Would, is 50 to 100, is that... I mean, is that reasonable or do you consider that kind of potentially dangerous or are you talking less than 50? Yeah, I, guess, I think it, I think it's definitely variable for people. What I would say is I tend not to think of it in terms of uh, grams, but I, I would say that somewhere between, hmm, I don't know, 75 to 150 grams of kind of good quality stuff maybe up to 200, depending on someone's activity level, like probably most people are going to feel pretty good in that zone. It, probably, yeah, let's, let's say between 100 and 200. Let's just kind of give a nice fuzzy range there. But okay. I, I think of it more in terms of like servings, like a, um, like a handful. Sure. So, yeah. so most people will do best with a handful of something slow digesting, 
um, at every meal. So that, you know, depending on the size of your hands or how much you're eating, that'll fall into different kind of gram recommendations. And you want to adjust it up and down depending on your activity levels, obviously. Um, few people really thrive long term with probably less than 50, 60, 70, especially if they're training hard and especially if they're female. Again, you're going to have your outliners or your outliers who do great on that, but it's, it's fairly rare. And you're also going to have your outliers who do really well on 300 uh, a day, right? Right, um, right. So that's, that's kind of a non-answer, yeah. but it kind of comes back to this idea that you want to test things. Yeah. So try the kind of middle zone, right? The handful of slow digesting carbs at every meal and then play with it, right? Try a few, try a week of lower, try a week of higher, just see how you feel. And people will say, oh, you have to adapt to the lower carb way and that's fine. But at the same time, I, I like to go with the kind of experiential um, awareness and, and really practically speaking, the idea of having to adapt to something I find really kind of, I don't want to say troubling, but interesting um, that if this is so good for me, why do I require such an extensively complicated protocol and transition period and setup to it and structure around it? Now, it could be that there are great medical reasons. I mean, we know for sure that low carb is fantastic for treating certain things, yeah. but I think we don't. We want to be careful about extrapolating from that to an average normal person or an athlete, right? right? I think we right. want to be very population or person specific. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm not sure if that answers your question. That does seem no. like a bit of waffling, and I don't mean it to be, but it's just that there are so many variables. I, yes. I like to start with a yes. ballpark and then adjust. Yeah, no, and you did. You answered the question. You gave the mm -hmm. ballpark range, and then again, the, the key thing is – you know, the variables, like the training, you know, if you're looking at a sedentary person versus someone that's training at a very high level, you know, two totally different things. Mm -hmm. um, so. and, and sex is, you know, sex gender is very key as well. Like men and women just <laughs> stop me if you've heard this before, but they're kind of different <laughs> physiologically. And, and right, we're learning right. that women are not just little men and yeah. it, comes, I mean, that comes through in a whole variety of things, whether that's cycling training, whether that's hormones, whether that's things like intermittent fasting. I mean, yeah. the approaches have to be, and of course there's crossover, right? It's sort of like the Venn diagrams with the overlapping circles, but um, you really do have to be sensitive to quite uh, key differences physiologically on average if you're training male athletes versus female athletes or seeing male clients versus female clients. And this is often troubling for people <laughs> that enroll in PN coaching as a couple yeah. because what will happen is usually the guy will drop 20 pounds effortlessly while the woman will <laughs> struggle to do anything or maybe oh. she'll gain weight and be totally frustrated. And so yep. I can only imagine the arguments around the dinner table that have occurred oh, man. as a result of <laughs> creating a, some a internal battles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Well, we could spend, this is another one of those topics where we could spend a lot of time talking about with the low carb thing. And it's really, really interesting to me. Um, but there are some other uh, key questions I definitely wanted to ask you. So, uh, let me ask you about your free ebook over at stumptuous.com. Uh, something about calories. I, I have it. I think it's fantastic. I wonder if you could maybe talk about that. And I wanted to ask you, has anything changed since you wrote that? Yeah, it's funny. Nothing, nothing has changed since I wrote it. I think the, the principles in it are timeless enough that, that it hasn't changed. And, and the, the fundamental message is really keep it simple and keep it sane. Yes. And 
stay checked in with yourself, right? Again, don't outsource what you're doing to experts. There is a wisdom that your body has and the awareness is there if you cultivate it, right? Because a lot of us have gotten away from it. We tend to ignore it or, or just ignore, you know, just not listen to the signals. But the signals are there. Um, there's a whole amazing complex mechanics of how your appetite is regulated and how energy balance happens. And it's really kind of magical in a way. So all of that machinery is there for you if you choose to take advantage of it. So originally when I wrote it, I was just so frustrated by the pile of junk that was out there. <laughs> and as you say, like the confusing and the competing information. Yes. And I kind of reached this moment where I was like, oh my God, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> like it's, there's so much stupidity and so, and people are so lost because I think that the thing is people want to do the right thing, right? People are all trying very hard to do the right thing. So if they make mistakes in their nutrition, it's not because they're stupid or lazy or whatever. It's because they're trying to do the right thing. And I think we need to be very mindful and compassionate about that and understand that that's the position that they're starting from. So the book was kind of an attempt to speak to that element in people and to say, you know what? It's okay. Let's just calm down (laughs) and sense in and think this through or feel this through or use our own wisdom. So here's some principles that you can use. Here's some things that are generally accepted as workable. And here's how you can test them to see if they're, they're workable for you. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, resource. I think it's, what, around 35, 40 pages, something like that. Uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode because I think it's just a great, great insight. And um, I'm glad to hear the story behind it. Is there a simple nutrition tip that you could recommend right now specific for fat loss? Maybe one big thing. Everybody's interested in fat loss. One big thing that you can recommend. Well, of course, I have to endorse our two anchor habits, which we use in, <laughs> in PN coaching. And you, even if you only do one of them, you'll still be ahead of the game. But the two anchor habits are eat slowly and eat to what we call 80% full. So 80% full is basically the feeling you would have if you were just just satisfied. Like if you could get up from the table and walk away or even jog away and still feel pretty good, like feel that there's some nutrients in there but you're not full, you're not stuffed, you're satiated, you're satisfied. You've had just enough. So that's what 80% full is. But eating slowly is the only pathway pretty much to 80% full in any kind of sustainable way. So the first thing I would say, if you do nothing else, eat slowly. And I mean really eat slowly. Like I I thought I was eating slowly until I timed a meal. And I was plowing through a dinner, what I thought was slow, in 10 minutes. That is not slow. I mean, maybe that's slow by North American standards, right? right? But <laughs> right. the Europeans would laugh at that. So I actually started timing my meals to, to calibrate and test my own perception of how I was doing. Um, and so I'm pleased to report I'm, I'm kind of averaging about 20, 25 minutes now. So I'm feeling pretty wow. awesome about that. But um, so eat slowly and time yourself. That's, that's, that will be transformative because not only will you be on your way to starting to lose fat, you'll taste your food and you'll, you'll start to make better choices because if you try to eat something like a Dorito really slowly, like you put it in your mouth and you kind of suck on it and like chew it and notice the texture, (laughs) it's gnarly. It's disgusting, right? Or like a diet soda. You keep that in your mouth, you'll start to like sense these kind of chemical weird 
tar-like aftertastes. So, but real food is amazing. Like a blueberry, no matter how much time you spend on that, is going to be awesome. Right, right. So, so not only does it get you eating less, it gets you eating better and really enjoying it. Right, really enjoying yeah. it because yeah. that's that's part of it too. The more you enjoy, the less you want to fill the void. Um, a lot of us eat because we want to fill the void. Right, there's an emptiness there, a hollowness, um, and so we can partially fill that by really experiencing our food, really experiencing our lives, but really yeah. experiencing our food. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I know that's something I could probably improve on. And um, hearing you say this now, this is uh, the second interview recently I've done where that uh, advice came up. So I think it's definitely something I will focus in on myself. So we should be shooting for around 20 to 25 minutes for a meal. It is sort that- of depends. Like, let's say you're having a snack on the run, right? Maybe five minutes is your slow eating. Maybe 10 minutes is your slow eating. I would say for something like a whole meal, yeah, 20 yeah. to 25 yeah. minutes is, is your goal. Yeah. Or longer if you can do it, right? right. Relax. Right. Uh, yeah. Have some good conversation. Now, that's not always practical. People have busy lives. So I would say slow is going to be very relative yeah. to you, what you're doing, what you need, what you're eating at the time. You know, if you're eating, a, I, this morning I ate a single fig and I was like, I'm going to just eat this slowly. So that took, you can't, I mean, yeah, how much time can yeah. you spend on a fig? I, I think yeah. I was done in a minute, but still that was a minute rather than right. shoving the whole thing in my mouth, chewing and having it gone in five seconds. Right. So yep. it's definitely a very relative concept, but it's something fun to just play with. Like, could you add a minute? Could you add uh, a breath between a bite? Could you put your fork down? between bites. Like for some people, that's a huge victory because we tend to kind of just shovel it in very rhythmically, right? Or guzzle. I know we're running up against the clock here. So let's talk about the precision nutrition and the the level two that you've mentioned. Uh, We did talk about that on one of the previous shows, but since you are one of the key uh, leaders in level two, I wonder if you can tell us more about that. Yeah, level two is my baby, so I might get a little bit misty when I talk about it, but um, basically the level two coaching certification is, um, well, let me, let me just give you a bit of context. So the level sure. one is really more like an undergraduate course, like a survey course in coaching nutrition. So half of it is coaching and half of it is nutrition, like hands-on, biochem, glycolysis, Krebs cycle, uh, digestion, like all of that stuff. Right. So... It's much more kind of hands-on. Um, introductory is the wrong word because it's a little more advanced than that. But yes. it's it's really much more about the science of nutrition with some ideas about how to put it into practice. Whereas the level two is much, much more about the art of coaching. Um, how do you offer nutrition information to your clients? How do you help them to change? How do you communicate with them effectively and that sort of thing? So it really focuses... Um, vastly more on the practice, the mastery of the craft of coaching. Excellent. And so who is it for? Who is it not for? Well, right now it's uh, currently for level one certified people who are looking to improve their skills specifically in the domain of coaching. So, I mean, we have thousands of certified pros now, so it's quite a large pool. Yes. Um, in the future, I'm not really sure. We may consider opening it up to folks who haven't done level one, but I think that having level one is really a solid foundation. But we do have people from all walks of life, like and all, all countries, I should say all countries, but, we, but many countries too. We certainly have a global audience, which is pretty cool. But So we have people who are younger, we have people who are older, 
maybe currently working in the fitness industry, maybe new to the industry, or have lots of experience, or people who are not technically in the industry, but are doing some kind of related work. Like, for example, we have a couple of doctors. I have a dentist. I have a guy who's a life coach. I have someone who does like ergonomic assessments for workplaces. So there's really all kinds of people. Uh, I think I might have um, like a radiation tech person, an oncologist, like just a vast spectrum. Um, and some people are using this as a way to transition careers, right? So, so they might have had a full career in another domain and decided, hey, I'm in midlife or whatever. Um, I want to shift directions now and go into fitness and nutrition. This is my passion and I want to be able to do it better. Or you might be, again, working in the fitness industry already and feeling like, okay, I'm pretty good, but I want to be awesome. Right, right? Right. I want to really deepen my knowledge. So people have different motivations coming in, but it is really quite a mixed group and a really fun uh, group at this point. And it's cool to see how people are able to take the stuff that they're learning and applying because it's very practice-based and they're taking it to their daily lives right now. It's been, it's been quite a neat experience to see how they're doing it. So there's a lot of uh, coaches and trainers that listen to this show and uh, depending on when this, this show goes live, but so they would just go to Precision Nutrition and they can get all the information around level two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll see on the site there's different options for um, different programs that we offer. And so, besides stumptuous.com, where can people go to find you and connect online? PrecisionNutrition.com is a nice way to find me. Um, that's the easiest way. I mean, stumptuous.com is a, a classic way. Yeah. I'm also on Twitter. <laughs> at Stumptuous. Okay. I, I, I pop in there occasionally. Facebook, you can look for me as Stumptuous or as Krista Scott Dixon. You'll find either one. All right. And any final um, seminars or services you'd like to mention before my final question for you? Um, not right now. I feel like we've covered quite a lot of bases. I will okay. be speaking at the Asia Fitness Convention in Bangkok in October. So if you have any listeners in the region who are coming to that, uh, feel free to drop in and say hi. All right. And again, I'll try to attach a link to that in the show notes for the episode as well. And uh, final question. So I think you have provided just incredible information in this interview, and I hope that listeners get a ton of value out of it. I'm sure they, they will. But what is the one big action that you can recommend for someone that they can take away right now and apply immediately after hearing this? You know, one of the lines that John Berardi told me years ago, and we have now distributed through our entire coaching program, is, how's that working for you? And it's such a genius line. And, and you have yeah. to deliver it in a non-arrogant kind of way. Right, right. But, but what it really speaks to is checking in with yourself, doing a reality check, doing a gut check. Is what I'm doing working? And if I don't know, how do I know? Like, how do I figure that out? What would I, what additional data what I need to gather in order to successfully answer that question. But how's that working for you? I mean, generally when we ask that of ourselves, we know immediately, right? Yes, right, <laughs> Like, right. I'm, I'm in this job. How's that working for you? And like, oh, God. Yes, yes. Or I'm in that relationship with that person or I'm, I'm doing this particular thing or I'm training this particular way. Like, you know when things are working and not working. So very rarely does this even require yeah. any sophisticated level of, of digging. Uh, most right. of the time, the answer is right there, just slapping you in the face like a wet fish. But, yeah. you know, sometimes it takes a little more introspection. But how's that working for you? And you can use that... For anything. Yes. Anything. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. I mean, I think because, you know, we're always talking about training and nutrition things on the show. And 
you know, so taking that self inventory and being honest with yourself, how's your nutrition working? How's your training working right now? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you can't lie. It's, you're going to know. So it's yeah. very, very revealing. I love that action. So, yeah. And, you know, I just want to add one more piece to it, too. Sure. We tend to focus on the problems in fitness and nutrition, right? What do we have to correct? What do we have to fix? Where are the gaps? But ultimately, I'd like to see people use a kind of joy-based or, or bright spot-based orientation. So what is working? Well, just go and do more of that. Right? Yes, what is yes. awesome for you? Just go and do more of that. Um, I, I tend not to focus as much on fixing things. I tend to ignore the quote-unquote problems right. in favor of expanding the solutions that are already occurring. So if we go back to how's that working for you, you can find the things that are already working for you yes. and just do more of them or right. do them better or do them in a different way more, more broadly. Well, that's a really good point because maybe, you know, 10% of what you're doing right now is really, really effective and you just mm -hmm. need to, you need to know what that 10% is and do a lot more of it. Mm -hmm. So I love it. I love it. Krista, this has been really, really fantastic. I really enjoyed this interview and uh, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right. Well, there's the interview with Dr. Krista Scott Dixon. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope that you learned something and I hope that there is at least a few things that you can take out of the interview and apply in your training and nutrition because there's just some great insight in the interview and uh, she is really, really fantastic. And I'm very honored and happy that she came on the show. You know, I really tried to reach out to people that have similar philosophies that, that I do about training and nutrition. And it's just great to hear that, you know, the, there are these recurring themes about strength training and uh, how to optimize nutrition and the importance of it. You know, again, strength as the foundation for living a better life. I mean, it really is. That's really what it comes down to. But uh, again, I think that she shared uh, great actionable advice in the interview, and I love her big uh, takeaway at the end, kind of that self-inventory uh, question, which is really important to ask yourself. So uh, I'll sign off with that. Again, I hope you got value from it. And uh, as always, I wanted to thank today's show sponsor, which is Audible Audiobooks. To get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook, you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash train. That's audibletrial.com forward slash train. So that does it for this week's episode. I will see you next week. You never know who's going to be on the show. So uh, we'll see who comes to the uh, and visits the Ardella Training Podcast on next week's episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.